0: Welcome to our Advice and Insights podcast, a special series on the case for dividend growth, investing in a post-crisis world. What we're doing here is a series of talks, including some excerpts from the book itself to help capture the investment philosophy known as dividend growth investing that we have made a cornerstone to our practice at the Bonson Group. The book, The Case for Dividend Growth, has just come out, and represents my best work and best case and argument for the investment methodology that we believe is at the cornerstone of a truly efficient client experience. We look forward to getting your feedback through this Advice and Insights podcast on the dividend growth orientation. Chapter one, why people invest. Cash flow is king. You know, I... I think that in a lot of ways, this uh, first chapter of the book is one of the most important ones, not just in the sense that it sets up a lot of the subsequent chapters, but I think it is so important for people to understand the journey I went on to get to a point of viewing dividend growth investing as uh, such an incredibly comprehensive solution to that which most investors are trying to solve for. And the epiphany that I talk about in the book Um, And I'm going to try to explain a little bit to you right now. It may not seem particularly profound. It may not seem all that novel. But I want to assure those of you who do not manage investment capital for a living that it is, that what may seem somewhat sensible and common sense actually is anything but in terms of the real way, uh, uh, the real world kind of realities of how people think about investment capital. And, and I, I start off with this basic understanding, and it took me a number of years to get there. But the point at which I got there and fully appreciated what this meant, I can tell you, I never looked back. It revolutionized the way I viewed my job as a professional investment manager. And that is that all people are investing for return of cash. Now, I understand. There are some people who say, no, 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 I don't need the cash back. I just want Growth. But even then, they want that growth for someone to get the cash back. It may be that they want to leave it to a charity and their estate plan, or they want to uh, buy a house with it in the future, or it may be they want to leave it to their grandkids, or it may be they just want it to continue growing forever and along the way produce income for you, you know their alumni or for their uh, spouse or whatever the case may be. But whether it is, uh, excuse me, cash they want back in the short term, or cash they want back in the long term, including multiple generations from now, or it is cash they want back periodically, in the form of some flow of cash, ongoing income, or cash they want back in a big lump sum. For example, I'm putting 50 grand away today, and in 20 years, I need to be able to pull out 200 grand for my kids' college education. It doesn't matter if of those two major variables, short-term versus long-term or anything in between, and periodic versus lump sum, that at any example, anyone can use, the objective of investing is the return of cash. And to the extent that we apply that to real-life investing and practical solutions One may say, I don't need current cash. I have a long-term solution, so I don't care about return of cash. I just want growth, growth, growth. And so then one day, of course, they want to sell it at a profit and get back what? Cash. I, therefore, had to go about solving for what I thought was the most sensible and, and reliable and successful way of returning cash to investors, in in the different contexts in which they want that cash returned, whether it be current income, future income, uh, short-term lump sum, long-term lump sum, a combination of all of the above. So, from the philanthropist to the entrepreneur to the grandparent to the you know young trust fund kid, whatever the case may be, money is invested to return cash later. And this led me to the uh, realization that uh, growth and income are not, in fact, separate objectives. And let me read, actually, from Chapter 1 of the book. Where people resist the idea of cash flow investing is when they pretend that growth and income are separate objectives. Calling someone a growth investor may simply be a reference to their timeline, but it is not a claim that they have no interest in the future return of cash. A current income objective is easy to identify, and so is a future income investment, but I contend that the nomenclature of growth versus income is mere semantics—a reference to mechanics, and possibly a reference to timeline, but not at all a separation between one who doesn't ever want cash and one who does. And so, certainly, the book then it goes to it goes to great lengths to try to uh, uh, elaborate what this might mean in practical terms in investment application for accumulators of capital versus spenders of capital. But, but our belief that a, a company that is paying a great return of cash flow from their operating profits to investors, that, there, that is a way of returning cash. And when you don't need it because you need money in the future or because you, you want a big lump sum later, or because you want a flow of income later, in other words, you're an accumulator of capital, that, that dividend growth represents its own form of wise, intelligent means of generating that future return of cash. And then when one wants a more current flow of cash that they actually intend to withdraw from the portfolio in the present tense, that in that case, dividend growth becomes a very um, risk-averse way relative to so many alternatives to, to generate the same. And, and so we are, are interested in real profits. We're interested in real investment gains that then get uh, passed on to shareholders. And I'll tell you uh, three things that often get forgotten outside the world of dividend growth. And I read again from the end of chapter one. Investment gains come from the belief of future profits – or they come from real profits. If from real profits generously shared with shareholders, investors have a chance to compound their gains through the reinvestment of dividends, and along the way in obtaining this great performance, the dividend tells us something about the company that we would not have known without it. Or put differently, management used the dividend to tell us something we would not have otherwise known. And so what we're going to be talking about through the rest of this series and what I go to great length to elaborate in the future chapters of the book is solving for that question. How does one use their investment capital that they need as a means of getting more cash back in the future? How does one apply dividend growth to this in any and all circumstances as the battle tested optimal way to deliver investment results? And, and you know my answer will be that dividend growth investing is indeed the answer to that question, and that's what we're going to unpack in future chapters of The Case for Dividend Growth. Chapter 2, What's Old is New Again, Historical Context and Realities in Dividend Growth. You know, there is so much talk, and, and it is accurate talk. About the historical returns of the stock market, I, I believe that one of the most important things in in a book like mine and in a thesis like mine, where I'm suggesting that there exists a particular way to be exposed to the stock market, is one has to grapple with the reality that having no way of being exposed to the stock market, just simply being exposed to it, has so often done so well. And the fact of the matter is. The S&P 500 has increased 9.8% for the last 90 years, and that number moves up or down a little bit, depending on if you have a good year or bad year. But uh, on average, you you have some number, depending on if you're looking at 50 years or 70 years or 90 years or what have you, 9 10%. These are re- basically accurate figures for how the broad stock market as an index would have uh, performed. So it puts a big burden of proof on someone who's suggesting that there are perhaps um, more nuanced ways and more risk-managed ways to consider one's exposure to said stock market. Uh, you know, for, there there certainly have been brutal bear markets along the way in that stock market return. We know about 1974, 1982. Uh, An earlier recording referenced the dot-com crash and what took place in the early part of the new millennium. And then, of course, we know about the Great Recession. Those things are historical realities, but they don't negate the reality of the long-term historical average of the S&P 500. But what we do know is that in those periods, let's call it from 1920 to where we are now, where the S and P is uh, back tested, created this great historical return. That uh, the dividend yield was more than double what it is now in the S and P 500. That the broad um, market return depended much heavily, much more heavily on uh, dividends a- as a means of getting to its total return. And so, if you adjust the total return down for The uh, lower yield, the lower income that makes up its total return now, one could argue that uh, if you kind of kept those ratios parallel, that you may be looking at a much lower return going forward. I'm not interested in making that argument. I am merely reflecting the historical reality that when we refer to historical stock market returns, we are referring to a period of time where the dividends that were being paid to us were much higher than they now are. And it is true that stock buybacks were not a viable option for what companies did with their post-tax cash for a long time. We're going to talk about stock buybacks in a future recording. But um, there is no way to escape the fact that dividends right now across the whole market represent a much lower portion of return And even when adjusting for other mechanisms of returning capital to shareholders, such as stock buybacks, that less capital is being returned to shareholders. So to presume that on a price return basis, we're going to get the same return we have uh, is to assume a much higher price return that is separated from its dividend than we've ever had. Now, maybe that happens. Um, Maybe companies just continuing to invest uh, their profits back into their own company in perpetuity and not share those profits with companies, with, with the company's shareholders, maybe that would re- create the best possible return. And maybe all 500 companies doing that in the S&P. But that dramatically changes the historical argument, doesn't it? The historical argument has been based on a certain context that would not be similar to that. So you would have to be arguing for a future argument, not referencing the past. What I would argue is that for all the discussions around P.E. ratios and past returns and past dividend habits, that if one were to isolate the high-quality companies that are growing their earnings and then from those growth of earnings actually distributing greater cash to the shareholders, then we kind of isolate ourselves to a world of investing that we do know more about. That is less speculative, and that uh, can create a positive total return environment, and and do so with some uh, understanding of its sustainability due to the portion of the total return coming from the dividend. Um, but a lot of people argue that that the old days of companies returning capital shareholders are done. That that it is it is kind of a new normal, and no longer necessary. And, and I will read to you directly from the book uh, in Chapter 2 right now. Rather than believing in a new normal of light dividend payments coming from America's great companies, the historical reality points to the opposite. Mature companies reach a point where dividend payments become a necessity to properly reward shareholders as growth rates of the high octane years become unrepeatable into the future. The high growth companies that required high reinvestment in the past, think of the great technology companies from the 1990s like Microsoft, Intel, Cisco, and Qualcomm, evolved to a point of stable, impressive, attractive, free cash flow generation and reward shareholders with generous generous dividends rather than risky expansions that violate their stabilized business model. Has any company proven this more than Apple over the last decade or so? High growth companies that mature to the point of dividend leaders are not examples of failure. They're prototypical examples of success. So that theme that I lay out through the book is very reliant on history. I'm, I'm making the appeal that dividend growth is not something that goes against the historical realities, but in fact, demonstrates and makes the argument for the historical sound performance of risk assets in the past. Uh, And again, a uh, uh, reading from the end of chapter two, an understanding of markets teaches us that dividends serve as a mitigator of risk, particularly in those periods where risk mitigation proves to be most needed. A dynamic economy means there will be different periods producing different seasons of trend and proclivity around corporate attitude towards dividend payments. And through it all, the resilience of dividends for investors and the resilience of the companies paying them have argued for a dividend-focused investment approach, whether one is looking at risk or reward. Thank you for listening to this Advice and Insights special podcast series covering the case for dividend growth. We hope you have found it enlightening and at least given you a taste of what it is we believe at the cornerstone of our investment process. Of course, we really do encourage you to buy a copy of the case for dividend growth or reach out to us and maybe we'll get you a copy. We want you to read the whole book, not just merely rely on the podcast, but we do hope that this has given you a taste of the arguments that we make for dividend growth investing and giving you a better foundation to understanding the investment methodology itself. Thank you for listening to Advice and Insights Podcast.
1: The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there's no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance, and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analyses, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team in Hightower shall not be in any way liable for claims and make no express or implied representations or warranties as the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information reference herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates.